things. You've already heard this morning, as a history nerd, this is one of my favorite Sundays on the church calendar. I know I'm not alone, by the way. I know there are some other nerds. You had a little extra step, you know, uh, energy in your step this morning, a little more giddy than usual, and it's not just because we're getting chilly after the service. You just love history, too, and I love that. You know, there's nothing, history, history nerds come together. We seek each other out. And uh, it's special to know that some of you guys love the history of the church. So this is this one Sunday of the entire year where I get to inject a little bit of church history into your veins and hopefully help you see and, and understand more about the spiritual heritage that we have as children of the Reformation. It is good to remember that we are the recipients and the beneficiaries of great sacrifices that were made by believers who have gone before us, who literally risked their lives so that we could sit here today in America in comfort, open up God's word, and study it together. Don't take that for granted. It's a very, very special thing. So grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, find Psalm 19. Now, having finished Psalm 50 last Sunday, by the way, we got to Psalm 50, that means we're a third of the way through our study of the Psalms. Now we're going backwards just a bit, back to a Psalm of David in Psalm 19. All I want to do with these few verses here is set the table for our discussion today, because Jeff Steele did a great job talking about this treasure of God's Word. And so I want to talk from Psalm 19 about the beauty, the power of God's word. Not just New Testament, right? Old as well. Psalm 19, beginning in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, what you see there, first of all, are five titles given to the word of God, right? And again, we know the Psalms, this is poetry. So you're seeing, you're seeing David use sort of poetic forms here. Five titles, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and judgments, and then eight defining qualities of God's word. Perfect, sure, right, pure, enduring, true, more desirable than gold, and sweeter than honey. And then finally, my favorite part, four promises to those who will treasure God's word in their life. It will restore your soul. It will make you wise it will bring joy to your heart, and it will enlighten your eyes. Wow, those are four amazing promises, right? Now, is that how you would assess the role of God's word in your life? That's just, I think, a good foundational question. Do you see God's word that way? If not, maybe this is a good eye-opener for you this morning. That is, what, that is what David has to say about the power of God's word. Now, verse 11 is important, right? Because David's not gonna give us both a negative exhortation and also a great promise. He says, moreover, by them, by the precepts of God's word, your servant is, first of all, warned. And do we need warnings in our life? Yes, we, <laughs> yes Zion, we do. We do. We need warnings in our life. But look at this. In keeping them, 
the precepts of the Lord, there is great reward. I want to focus on that promise this morning. A life lived in obedience to God's word will bring a great reward. Do you believe that? Do you give that lip service or do you actually believe that that is true? As Papa Steele said this morning in our kids' lesson, we have a priceless treasure. You're holding it in your hands right now. It's in your lap, that Bible. In Psalm 119, not 19, but 119, that message comes through loud and clear. Your word I have treasured in my heart. That's a great verb. I treasure it in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. We see the similar thing in the New Testament, Matthew 13. Jesus talks about the value of this, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over and wait, wait. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's how valuable it is to him. He will give every single thing he possesses to understand the path to heaven which is found where? It's found in the word, in your lap, in your hands this morning. So if you assess something as a priceless treasure, then what will you do with it? Think about this. If you had all the gold, you had Fort Knox level gold, what would you do with it? You'd keep it and you'd store it and you'd protect it and you would value it. You would live for it and you would hold fast to it. And that's actually a really key phrase you find all over the Bible. You would hold fast to the word or hold firm to it. I'm going to give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. Look at the order there. That's so important. Paul says, the gospel preached, the gospel received, the gospel in which you currently stand, and the gospel by which you are saved. And then the qualifier, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. It's great to recognize that this is a great treasure, but are you holding fast to it? Philippians 2. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world doing what? Holding fast the word of life. So you want to be a light in the sinful world? Prove yourself to be a born again child of God by holding fast to the word which has led you to eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 5, very simple. But examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good, to that which comes from the Lord. And then finally, Titus 1, which gives us the, uh, the requirements for an elder, it says, holding fast the faithful word. That's what an elder has to do, which is in accordance with the teaching, the apostolic doctrine, so that he, this elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's what our elder has to do, holding fast to the word. So to summarize, we have a priceless treasure in God's word. It is perfect. It is pure. It is true. And for the man or woman who trusts in it, it's more desirable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And we cannot let it slip through our fingers. We cannot let it slip from our hands. We need to hold fast to it. 
Now, why does this matter so much on Reformation Sunday? Because historically, the church has failed over and over and over again at this very simple command to hold fast to the word of life. Over and over again, not holding fast, wandering away from the truth, and because the treasure of God's word was treated with such contempt for so long, it needed to be found and rediscovered in the 16th century, and that's what we celebrate today on Reformation Sunday. It had to be recovered because the church had so badly failed at holding on to the word of life. Now, you knew this was coming. I have a timeline. Yes. I have no maps for you today. I'm really sorry. I know, but I have timelines. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about both the early church and then what happened after the time of Constantine. So this is simply the 280 years of the early church from the resurrection on the left around the year 33 to the reign of Constantine, who we'll talk about in a second, in 313. And then two really big dates close to the resurrection. You've got the, the great Jewish revolt in 70 and the destruction of the temple. And then 100 is generally understood to be the end of what we call the apostolic era. At some point around that date is when the last apostle, John, passed away. And then we have these other years, right? But 280 years of the early church. So how was the word of God lost? What was the process? How was it lost? Well, during that time, you see on the screen, and this is very important, from 100 to 313, the early church was fighting for its life on two different fronts. First of all, there was the internal squabbles that were coming, just the arguments about what is sound doctrine and what isn't sound doctrine, and some of those fights were very severe. And then on the outside, the church was dealing with religious persecution. Now, that persecution at first was very local and sporadic, at first from the Jews, later from the Romans. But once the Romans caught wind that this thing called Christianity was actually not the same as Judaism, as those two phases went like this, and Judaism was an approved religion in Rome's eyes, but this Christianity thing was new. Once that started to be recognized, the church came under state-sanctioned harassment and violence. And martyrdom became a, an actual reality for Christians during this time, so much so that the early church father Tertullian, who died around the year 220, famously said, it's the blood of those martyrs that serves as seed for the church. The blood of the martyrs grows the church. And it was that persecution that ultimately caused Christianity to expand. It was the major factor in preserving the passion and the purity of the early church. Because listen, you don't join a movement and risk your life unless something very transformative has happened in your heart. And so that early church was purified through tribulation and through martyrdom. But everything changes in the year 312 with the ascent of this man, Constantine the first. He is going to unite the western flank of the Roman Empire in a very famous clash against his Roman rival, it's called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Some of you guys have heard this story. On the night before this battle, which is going to set the agenda for the Roman Empire, he claimed to have seen a vision in the sky of a fiery cross. And there was words written in Greek on the cross that said, by this sign, conquer. And then he claims that Jesus came to him that night in a dream and promised him victory if he would make the cross his battle standard. And so they did. 
That's exactly what he did, and he won that battle. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about whether Constantine's conversion was true. There are uh, so many books written on that, so much scholarly debate. What's important for our purposes today is after winning that battle and, and securing power in the Western Roman Empire, he issued a directive called the Edict of Milan. And that edict basically lifted the ban on Christianity. It made our faith, Christianity, a legal religion. It gave it legal status, and it halted all of that persecution. So get this now. In the year 313, overnight, with a quick stroke of the pen, the early church, would have been so pure, entered into a whole new experience. Everything changed. This movement that had been illegal and underground and persecuted and purified through tribulation would never be the same again. It's never been the same. And this is one of the reasons why even today we sort of pine away for those early church years because we recognize that's when the church was more pure than it's ever been since. How many times have you heard yourself saying, if we could only go back to the early church or try to get closer back to the early church because it was such a powerful era? Now, common sense would tell you that that edict should have been a cause for celebration in the church, right? It, wouldn't that be a positive development if we stopped being persecuted and martyred? In fact, Eusebius, the greatest historian of this era, saw Constantine's involvement as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And he wrote in his, in his history of the early church that he felt like this was the thing that was going to change the trajectory of the church and cause a breakout, a global breakout of, of Christianity. And, and everything would be so much better. And I, and I don't blame him for that because if any of us had been there, we probably would have thought the same thing. Like, <clears throat> how can that be a bad thing, right? The persecution is going to stop. But in hindsight, was the Edict of Milan good for the church? It was not. And this is one of the lessons of the Reformation. It was not good. When the emperor put his, his hand of favor upon Christianity, the church for the first time gained a foothold in the halls of government and power. The church gained a foothold in the halls of government and power. Imagine this. This has been written about by a number of scholars pastors of local churches who a couple of years before that had been arrested for their faith, tortured, some of them lost limbs, are now being invited by the emperor himself to come and stand on this new imperial pedestal. You're now a favored religion. What a change. So fast was this turnaround that less than six years after that edict, Constantine was building a grand basilica a worship place over the very place that Nero once fed Christians to the lions. You talk about a fast turnaround, but this greatly complicated things for the church. Now there was a whole new list of dangers they had to pay attention to. Whereas before the danger was persecution, now the danger they were facing is corruption and pride. Before 313, the threat of martyrdom had had a cleansing effect to the church, but now that cleansing agent had been removed. And by the way, the faith grew very quickly, just as Eusebius hoped. By the millions, the church spread all over the Roman Empire. But looking back, the motivation for that and the pace of it was not healthy. Not healthy at all. 
Multitudes of former pagans were now flooding into the church for all the wrong reasons because the emperor had said this is now the favored religion. They weren't coming because of true gospel conversions. They were just coming because they wanted the favor of the empire. And guess what? They brought all of their pagan ideas into the church. All of these, new, these old ideas from the old Roman religion now poured into the church and carried over. And over time, what happened in many parts of the empire is the doctrine of the church became known what we call it syncretism, the mixing of beliefs, the mixing of multiple things into a third thing, partly pagan, partly Christian, and it brought about a faith that was very different from the original apostolic faith of the early church fathers. This was not good for Christianity. Inconsistencies in belief and teaching began to spring up all over the place. Disunity in the church, internal struggles, confrontations and rivalries grew. You had, you had church fathers in Alexandria teaching one thing and others in Antioch teaching something else. And they're, they're literally physically fighting over it. And they're throwing accusations of heresy back and forth. It's a very tumultuous time for the church. This period that followed Constantine is referred to by scholars as the age of Caesaropapism. Caesaropapism, the taking of social and political power of the state and merging it with religious authority and making it one thing. Pretty soon there's going to be two elite powers, the emperor and the pope, and they are going to fight over who is the strongest, who has authority over whom. The Edict of Milan is a disaster for the church. From the fourth century onwards, slowly but steadily, the church began to shift from an organic faith of primarily lower-income people who were meeting quietly in homes, shepherded by humble shepherds, to a top-down institution with grand church buildings and elites who are now professional clergy. Think about that. Think about a, a change. Let me say it again. An organic faith of primarily lower income people meeting quietly and secretly in homes led by faithful, humble shepherds to a top-down institution filled with grand church buildings and elite men, academics, who are now serving as professional clerics. Huge change. Now, we have to be careful not to paint too bleak of a picture or to color it only in black and white. There were still many good things happening in the church. Genuine believers were still living out their faith, striving to worship and to walk with Jesus and to love people as we're doing today. There were still some amazing scholars in the church. We know that. Effective pastors in this era. Twelve years after the Edict of Milan, Constantine calls the Council of Nicaea, and by the grace of God, Certain men show up there and they win the day and, and sound doctrine, theology, and Christology are upheld. So that's a great praise. But gradually, the treasure of God's word began to slip through the hands of many churches and many church leaders in the middle to the end of the fifth century. And one of the ways that the church had tried to control the explosion of growth and the mixture of teachings was to try to control everything through ecclesiastical structures. They looked at the Roman Empire and how it, was, how it was done with emperors and senators and all these different layers, and they said, well, let's structure the church that way. Rather than sticking with the, what the Bible actually says about local church congregations and local elders and deacons, they sort of ignored that and said, well, hold on, in Rome, we see a better way. And they began to establish 
a multi-layered structure with the person at the top called a bishop who sort of represented the emperor. He was in charge of an entire region, not just a local church, but an entire region. And these men became quite powerful in the fourth and fifth century, even jockeying for supremacy amongst each other, jealousies and rivalries. You had the bishop of Antioch and the bishop of Alexandria and the bishop of Jerusalem and, of course, the bishop of Rome and then later the bishop of Constantinople. Now, there was no such thing as a pope yet, but the seeds for it, for a Romanized ecclesiology, were right around the corner. Eventually, the bishop of Rome is going to claim to be the most powerful among all the bishops, primarily because of his location there in the imperial city, which was the most important city in the world. So it made sense, even though many of the early bishops of Rome would, would with a false humility, say, oh, I'm just a first among equals. First among equals. They didn't mean it. It didn't work out that way. So what's the next stage? What's the next uh, timeline here? Let's go from Constantine to Luther. So we had 280 years on the other screen. We're going to get about another 275 years before technically what we have, the Roman Catholic Church beginning. So you have Constantine on one side, you have Luther on the other. Um, I'll get to Gregory in a second. About 1200 is really the zenith or the height of the Roman Catholic Church's power in Europe. And by 1375, quite a bit before Luther, you already have guys like Wycliffe and Huss, earlier reformers, beginning to, to speak up about the abuses of the church and the loss of God's word. So I'm going to keep that up there as we walk through some of this stuff. Now, some scholars will tell you that there was a, a pope by the name of Leo who served around 440 to 460. Some scholars believe that he was the first pope of the church. But I'm going to take the word of Luther himself and his, his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon. They were the ones who said that the Roman Catholic Church truly began in the year 590 with the ascension of this man known as Gregorius a very important figure, a very important figure for both the loss of God's word and also the Reformation. Gregorius was born into a wealthy Roman noble family, very highly educated, trained in the languages, trained in mathematics, trained in music, trained in law. Gregorius was a senator in Rome. He eventually became the prefect of the entire city of Rome. Very powerful man. Eventually, he went into monastic life for a time, but then emerged from that and became the international ambassador for the city of Rome in the imperial courts around the world. All that to say, Gregorius was not like many of the popes who would later follow him, who, let's be honest, were, they were knuckleheads. Gregorius was actually competent and skilled and smart and trained and beloved by many. He is a, he is a turning point in the history of the church. In the year 590, he's elected bishop of Rome. He takes the name Gregory I. Roman Catholics today will tell you he's known as Gregory the Great, but that is not what Luther called him. Luther called him the Pied Piper who led the church astray, pointing back to him. Gregory completely reshaped and refashioned both the dominant image of the Holy See there in Rome, the seat of the Roman bishop, and also many, many teachings of the church. He was the Pied Piper that led so many things astray. For example, the doctrine of purgatory comes from Gregory I. 
Has anybody found that anywhere in the Bible? No, me either. He's the one who formalizes the Catholic mass and actually converts it to a Latin mass. Now, why is that important? Because Latin was the language of the elites of the day. So by making, it, making the mass go into a Latin format, he literally took worship away from the common people because they couldn't understand it. That was part of his strategy. Under Gregory, the offering of prayers to Jesus through his mother Mary became commonplace. Can you think of any place in the New Testament where we're told to pray to anybody but God? He's the Pied Piper that began to lead the church astray. This is one of the many areas of Roman Catholic theology where scholars debate whether that pagan influence seeped into the church, Mariology, which has only grown over the centuries. But if you're trying to please pagans coming into the church who are used to worshiping other goddesses, this makes a ton of sense. You had Ishtar, right? You had Isis, you had Ashtoreth, you had all this goddess worship in the surrounding nations at this time. So there's a theory that offering Mary as an object of worship would have satisfied that need to keep the pagans happy within the Christian church. Then there's the papacy itself, an office which, again, is nowhere taught in the Bible. The only supreme office of the church found in Scripture is filled by who? By Christ. That's it. The only holy father we have in Scripture is God himself. And yet these men took that name. They literally took the name of God for themselves, Holy Father. And so with Gregory, the first pope, as we understand the papacy today, the treasure of scripture began to slip away. And all of this at the very time that Europe was going into the dark ages, the thousand years of dark ages, essentially between 500 and 1500, terrible time for Europe. But of course, this was only the beginning of that slippery slope. Rome is going to keep, even after Gregory, keeps sliding down that slope. I'll give you just a, a brief catalog of some of the things that they would, they would promote that have no basis in Scripture. And what that served to do, again, was to slowly allow the Word of God to slip from the hands of people. The veneration of images and relics. Can you imagine strange, magical thinking that if I just gaze upon a relic that somehow I will get grace from God? How, how strange, how pagan, completely pagan. The veneration of saints from the past. And again, this, this one actually makes sense. And again, this is a theory of scholars. You had pagans coming in that you were used to worshiping the Roman pantheon of, pantheon of God. So you had a God over this and a God over that that you could go and you could pray to. Well, guess what? The Catholic Church created patron saints, the God of this and the God of that. You could actually pray to a saint, pray to Jesus through a saint. But ultimately, like Mary, these saints became actual intercessors. Dead saints interceding for people in prayer. How pagan does that sound? Today, I mean, the Catholic Church has a patron saint for everything from librarians to beekeepers. There's literally hundreds of them that you can pray to. The establishment of a priesthood. Christ had abolished the need for a priesthood, right? And then in the New Testament, we read that every single believer is part of a royal priesthood. But what did the Catholic Church do? 
they established a professional class who they themselves would serve as mediators. You had to confess your sins to a man on earth rather than go to the one mediator we've been given. Only one, right? They required celibacy of their priests. Why? As a means of control. Does the Bible tell us that, that, that pastors have to be celibate and single? Quite the opposite. Marriage is encouraged. Be the husband of one wife. Why would you ignore the clear teaching of Scripture? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The rosary, more magical thinking, completely pagan in practice, where you just do this repetitive prayer. And if you look it up on the, on the official Roman Catholic website, it says, this is a quote, you have our lady's hand in your hand when you pray the rosary. You have the power of God in your hands, they say, when you pray the rosary. Indulgences. The fact that you can purchase salvific grace by writing a check or through acts of penitence. I could literally earn salvific grace by doing a whole bunch of charitable things. The doctrine of transubstantiation. Practice early on, officially confirmed by the church in the 13th century, where the celebration of the Lord's Supper was turned into a re-sacrifice, a re-offering of the body and blood of Christ every single day. Rather than what scripture clearly says, a once-for-all sacrifice. How, how do you see that in the book of Hebrews and end up doing a re-sacrifice every day? How big is this one body that they keep re-sacrificing in every Catholic church every day across the entire world? It's ludicrous. It's pagan. It's pagan. At the height of the Catholic church's power in Europe, right around 1200, there was a, a pope, ironically named Pope Innocent III, the most powerful of all the medieval popes. He began calling himself the vicar of Christ. He said, I am the literal embodiment of Christ before you, the sole representative of Jesus on the earth. Can you imagine the pride and the corruption of the church? The immaculate conception of Mary, 1854, a papal decree that Mary, not Jesus, but Mary was conceived apart from original sin. She's immaculate. And then it got worse. In 1923, not that long ago, Mary was decreed to be the co-redemptrix of Catholic people. They literally said that Mary suffered with Jesus and that with him she redeems the human race. Goddess worship. Pagan. And then to just cap it off. If you wanted to have one doctrine that said, you know what, we really can control everything, papal infallibility. Now, I can decide as the sole representative of Christ on the earth to make a, a pronouncement and it cannot be questioned because I speak for God. Papal infallibility. And then there's what I would call really the, the two biggest of all doctrines that got corrupted during this period. By the way, this is not just a, I know some of you guys are recovering Catholics, right? You grew up in the Catholic church. This is not just a bash on Catholics. I want you to see the progression of things and how bad it is. 
so that when you hear people say, oh, there's so much common ground here, there isn't. There just isn't. Authority. What, what, if you don't have the right authority, how can you know what is true? What's the authority of the Catholic Church? Yes, they would say scripture is important, but ultimately the authority for truth is rooted in the church itself, in the teaching arm of the Catholic Church, in the magisterium, as they interpret the Bible, which leaves the door wide open for them just to add stuff and just say, well, this is the way we see it, and we say it, and therefore it's true. And this is why the battle cry of the Reformation in the 16th century was sola what? Sola Scriptura. The reformers insisted, insisted that while the teaching of the church does have a place, by the way, don't, don't, don't miss that. The teaching of the church, there's a place for that. The ultimate and final authority is only one thing. It's Scripture for all faith and practice. For all faith and practice. So the second one then follows on the heels of authority. How is one saved? The doctrine of justification. Listen, if you ever get into a, a healthy, pleasant discussion with your Catholic friend, don't get lost on the, all, the, all the fringy stuff. Keep it on two things, authority and justification. I, I would highly recommend that because otherwise you get off in all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Settle on those two things. What is true and how can you be saved? Because this is where we have massive differences. In the face of clear scriptural evidence, the Catholic Church insists that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is not sufficient to be saved. Your faith and the grace of God is not sufficient. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient to secure salvation, not sufficient to provide forgiveness of sins. You have to add your good works to the cross in order to be saved. Jesus actually saved nobody. He just made salvation possible, and if you just do enough things, then you're in. That's essentially the Catholic doctrine of justification. How does that happen? How do you earn your way in? Well, the church was conveniently established seven sacraments of the church and said, here they are. Here's the seven things you've got to be involved in. What are they? By the way, that was not confirmed until the year 1215. Not sure what the people before that had to do. But the sacraments in the Catholic system, listen now, confer saving grace. You cannot be saved without these things. What are they? Baptism, confirmation, participation in the Mass and the Eucharist, penance, holy orders, marriage, which I always find interesting, and last rites. And if you don't participate enough in the sacraments, well, then you got to go to purgatory for hundreds or thousands of years, and there's more things to do before you can be saved. Can you see how how the deposit of sound doctrine, how the treasure of God's word got lost in this period? Just from Gregory to Luther. Can you see why Reformation was so necessary? Can you see why these reformers risked their lives to bring God's word back to the forefront? The honest truth is the Roman Catholic Church remains to this day a church of syncretism, a mixture of a little scripture, a lot of tradition, and a whole bunch of paganism, even to this day. It's just not rooted 
in the teaching of Jesus or in the apostles. And as nice and sincere as our Roman Catholic friends and neighbors are, if they believe this stuff and if they're trusting in it for salvation, they have a different gospel than we do, which is no gospel at all, Paul says. And they are part of an apostate church. That is just the truth. Now, when we talk to our friends, do we lead with that? It's probably not a good idea, right? But let's, let's, talk, let's talk truth here. That's the situation. So that ought to give us a, an urgency to talk to our Catholic friends and neighbors because they're in a perilous place right now if they're believing in this stuff because it won't save them. All right, so that's the how God's word was slowly lost. Let's ask the question, why? Why did the treasure of God's word slip out of the church's hands? Now, that's a very complex question. We could do a whole sermon series on this, but today I want to give you two reasons why this happened. And they're both deeply rooted in the human condition, in the condition of natural man. The first one is really easy. In fact, we called this, this whole day prone to wander. Raise your hand if you're prone to wander. Okay, good. Did anybody not raise their hands? We're all prone to wander. We sang the song, Come Thou Fount, right? That third stanza says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God I love. That has got to be one of the most honest lyrics ever written in a worship song. That doesn't always happen, right? But I think we all feel that that's true, this internal battle in the human heart. We love the Lord. We love the Lord, but at the same time, we still love ourselves so much. And that's the battle of sanctification that we're all in the middle of right now. This intersection of God's grace and our weakness. And it's reflected in all kinds of scriptures. You know Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. He says, all of us, each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Savior, the iniquity of us all. Psalm 119 again. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander. What a great prayer request, right? Lord, I am striving by the power you give me to seek after you, to abide with you, but I am weak. And so here's my prayer request. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Those are the side-by-side truths. Weakness, right? And ultimately, we have to acknowledge that he is the only reason that any of us here this morning hold fast. He is the only reason any of us here have not wandered away. And if you don't agree with that, or you don't understand that, then you're in danger. If you're thinking that in your own fortitude, you are keeping yourself within the fold, you're in danger right now. It's only because of him. Without him, without being transformed in the heart, without being born again, without the spirit within us, we will all wander away from God's word. The second reason why the church lost the treasure of God's word is man's love of power. Oh man, it's, it's in you. It's in every one of us. Natural man's love of power. Are we not seeing this in the world today? Even in our own country, power. What people will do to hold on to power. It was the 19th century British historian, Lord Acton, who famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, is there a better truism than that? 
By the way, the next statement that he made that we don't usually read is this. Great men are almost always bad men. Great men are almost always bad men. Power corrupts because we're born corrupted. And whenever natural man is able to acquire power, it's like a drug to him. It's so intoxicating. He cannot resist it. With power comes all the things that natural man craves, wealth, security, admiration, influence, social status, and above all, the ability to craft my life in such a way that everything goes my way at the expense of others. I have control over other people. I can manipulate everything to get my own way. That is the dream of every natural man and woman who's ever been born into this world. Power. Studies have shown over and over again that once people assume positions of power, they're far more likely to act selfishly, impulsively, and aggressively. And sadly, at the same time, they also have a harder time seeing the world from the perspective of others. So while they're going more selfish, they're also less empathetic because of power. What they end up doing is living in an echo chamber where everybody's just telling them how awesome they are and they never really see the growing depravity in their own hearts. Many end up engaging in reckless and destructive behavior because you know what? They can do it and get away with it and there's no accountability. I know it's before a lot of your time, but we once had a president named Bill Clinton and he had an affair while serving in the White House Back in 2004, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes, and he was asked the question, why did you do it? And you know what his answer was? I credited him for being honest. His answer was, because I could. Because I'm the most powerful man in the world, and I could. The more power a natural man has, the more he will focus on getting his passions and his desires met, and other people just don't matter. All of which proves Jeremiah's point. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a verse we should all know. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's all of us. But then add power to it and you have a, the potential for a monster. So, so, what happens, combining all of this, when a man acquires so much power that he is now looked at as the sole representative of God on the earth? That can't be healthy. When he's given the freedom to make any infallible proclamation he chooses, when he has the ability to doctrinally reshape a worldwide religion while not being born again and not being filled with the Spirit, that is a recipe for disaster. That is what has happened to the Catholic Church. Because a man like that, with that type of power, but without the Holy Spirit, certainly is not going to feel the need to hold fast to what God has said. He will do whatever he pleases, and he will do whatever he has to do to maintain his power. And that is the history of the papacy. It's ugly. It's what Pope Gregory did. It's what many popes and cardinals and bishops who followed after him did reshaping the Christian faith in their own image, not for the glory of God, but for their own glory. That's the, that is the difficult truth of church history. 
And that brings us to the reason for our celebration today, God's faithfulness in reforming his church in the 16th century and putting God's word back front and center in the life of his people. Amen? Now, I don't have time to go through all the ways that the Protestant Reformation brought positive change. That's for another day. But can I share with you before I'm done one of the great mistakes the reformers made? We don't often talk about that, right? We love, we love to pump up these guys because they were amazing. They were courageous and they were strong and they, they fought hard and they risked their lives, but they were not perfect men, not even close. There's one glaring mistake that I think has application for us today, and it's this. The reformers could not in their day envision a church that was independent from the power of the state. It was so ingrained in them because the Catholic Church had been so tied together with the power of Rome for so long, they could not envision a church without the power of the state. And so they fell into the same trap. And it seems strange to us. Here they were rebelling against Rome. But what happened? As soon as they got some power and they were able to establish Protestant lands, guess what they did? They established state churches. Churches combined with the power of the state. Amazing, right? So you had all these Lutheran lands that were run by Protestantism. You had Zwingli's Canton of Zurich. You had Calvin's Geneva, theocratic states where the power of religion was combined with the power of the state. So much so, the political roots ran so deep. Luther, later in his life, referred to the church as the right hand of God and the state as the left hand of God not perfect men. And so each one of them found themselves in the thick of trouble, trying to do this reformation, trying to put the word of God back, but refusing to return to the simple form that made the early church so powerful. And this was, man, if I could go back in time and talk to these guys, I'd say, study the early church. They didn't go back to it. They didn't push away from power. They didn't stay independent of government. They didn't maintain a simple biblical ecclesiology. They didn't emphasize the autonomy of local congregations. They preferred centralized control. And they found themselves in trouble. Now, here's the reason why I think this has application to us today. And some of you know what's happening in discussions in Christian circles all around the place right now. It's everywhere. Prominent Christian academics and historians and seminary professors are all talking about striving to make America a Christianized country. Have you heard this? Go on, go on Christian Twitter. You will not believe it. A Christianized America, a theocratic America. How, how do, after all the lessons of church history, how is it that we get back to that? So I've got a whole series on YouTube about Christian nationalism and the dangers of it. It's on our YouTube page. Check it out. But we all need to be aware that this is brewing. And I know why it's brewing, because we're all tired of the moral chaos in our country, are we not? We're tired of drag queen story hour and, and LGBT this and trans that and, and the vaccines. We're tired of all of it, right? But the answer is not to swing the pendulum over here and say, all right, let's make America a Christianized country and bring religion and, and the state together again. This has been tried and it does not end well. So just be alert to that truth because you're gonna see more and more of that 
coming to the surface. Let me close with this final word. I want to come back to this idea of wandering, this idea of holding fast. And the third stanza of this song, Come Thou Found. It's so beautiful. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Folks, we owe everything to Christ who paid our debt. Everything. With his own precious blood. He's lavished us with grace the grace we need to abide in him daily, to walk with him in, in obedience. It's his grace that enables us to get victory over sin. It's his grace that allows us to not wander. Now listen to what the songwriter requests next. So he acknowledges this great truth, this debt that Jesus has taken for us. And he says, now let that grace like a fetter, like a big, heavy, great chain, bind my heart, which wants to wander Bind it to Christ. What are, you, if you want a, a simple prayer request that you can come back to, Lord, bind my, my heart, which is all over the place, right? Up one day, down another, bind it, like with a great chain to you. Let grace do that. And then he says, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Prone to lead the God, lead the God I love. So he says, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Again, since the songwriter knows his own disposition, his prayer request there is, Lord, by your power, seal and protect my heart because I'm weak. Because I'm weak. And this whole stanza fits so much in line with what Paul says about his own life in 2 Corinthians 12. You know how Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh? that God has given him. And he, three times he asked the Lord to take it away. And the answer ultimately is, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That is the key to preventing a wandering heart. But how many of us do that? How many of us go to prayer and say, Lord, make me weaker? so that your power and strength will shine through me. Because listen, if, you're, if your plan this week is to battle sin and to overcome sin, and you're gonna do it in your own fortitude, in your own strength, yeah, you've missed it. This is the prayer request. In my weakness, relying on God's promise to seal and finish the work that he's begun in you. Even when we feel we're at our weakest, God every day is demonstrating his perfect power. He is causing you to endure in the faith. So lean into him. Not your own strength, not your own fortitude. You and I are here this morning worshiping God simply because of his grace and because of his power. He's the one who keeps us from wandering. He is the one who gives us the strength to hold fast to his word. Ask the Lord to continue to give you that strength because we're weak, amen? And until that day, we'll continue to sing about his greatness and his glory until the day that we see him face to face. Happy Reformation Day.